which there's where how can we possibly be certain that what we have now has any resemblance to what the original authors of scripture had so who cares if the original authors of scripture were inspired if we don't have any of their original work then how can we possibly trust and bank our lives on a word uh, that that ultimately we don't know how accurate it is and we are not going to rehash everything that we talked about last week you can see uh, what in your handout you can see what the critics say we can concede all the things in part two yes we do not have the original autographs the original writings that the apostles wrote down the new testament on those materials that they wrote wrote on were not permanent materials they tended to be papyrus or parchment so they did disintegrate not too difficult to disintegrate and so we don't have many manuscripts that are very early although we do have quite a few Uh, There wasn't printing to ensure, you know, everybody was hand-copying things, which does lend to more divergence of little things here and there where one text is different from another. Uh, So, therefore, we don't have uniformity in the biblical text, but we are also looking at all the things that we do have that give us confidence, and in fact, we're going to see today, we have more confidence now that we're closer to the original text than we might have been back at the time of the King James uh, translators. We do have reliance on manuscripts. We have lots and lots and lots of manuscripts. That's what we're going to kind of look at. This is a bit of a review Oh, that's right. They want to... Oh, no. It didn't start where I wanted it to start. That was the beginning of last week. From current slide. There we go. So, if you might remember this, we have tons and tons of manuscripts. What's a manuscript, by the way? How is it distinguished? Why isn't the Bible that you hold in your hand a manuscript? John? It's handwritten, not necessarily by the author, but it's handwritten by an an author, an author or someone who's copying, right? A handwritten manuscript. So we have about 5,500 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Then there's 10,000 manuscripts in Latin, other ancient versions and languages, 5 to 10,000. And then, as we said last week, the church fathers were pastors and they were preaching out of the Bible and their writings were preaching out of the Bible and they... Uh, virtually all the New Testament can be reconstructed just from their writings. There's over a million quotations from the Greek New Testament in the patristic fathers who wrote in Greek. Now, and we looked at, by comparison, what happens if we look... You know, everything you know about Caesar Augustus that you were taught in school comes from one of these guys, pretty much. Anything, the whole reason you know that Alexander the Great was really a real guy is from these... This is from these authors. Now, how many manuscripts do we have of them? We have 27, 3, 200, 20, as opposed to the scriptural evidence, which is 5,500 Greek manuscripts. Now, oh yeah, and Herodotus, don't forget him. Now, so the average classical Greek writer has less than 15 copies of his work in existence. That's... These guys have a lot. The average classical Greek writer has less than 15 copies. Uh, As a visual comparison, if we stacked up the pages of these manuscripts, of all the manuscripts, we'd end up with something for for all the authors, like the average author from Greek antiquity, we'd have a stack of pages about four feet high. The New Testament, we'd have 
something that was 6,000 feet high, a mile and a quarter worth of pages stacked on top of each other is the manuscript evidence for the scripture. So again, we're just looking at saying, okay, if we're going to compare, if we're going to compare this process, we have a lot more evidence and a lot more data. This is, and, and if you're going to believe that Alexander the Great lived and that you have a reasonable understanding of what he did based on these handful of manuscripts, then we, when we look at the comparison of all the manuscripts we have of the New Testament, it's very, very, uh, we have a high degree of confidence we know what the text was. All right. Um, the Age of the Manuscripts. This is uh, a really fun book here. This is the Codex Sinaiticus, which is about 350 A.D. It's the first complete copy of the New Testament. It's called the Codex Sinaiticus because it was found in a monastery in the, uh, uh, that was uh, at the base of Mount Sinai. And it was kind of discovered by the wider world in the 1800s. Uh, but it has the entire New Testament written in book form. You can see it was already moving from scrolls to books. That's the oldest complete copy. It is not the oldest manuscript we have. This is the oldest manuscript that we have. Papyrus 52. That's really cool. Do you know why that's really cool? It's from 125 AD. And it's a papyrus of part of the... It's a fragment of the Gospel of John. Now, it's not very big. It's only about the size of a postcard. And you can see that's actually the front and back, which is why we know that it was originally a book. Because scrolls, you wouldn't write on the back. This is a codex. This is a book. And they wrote on the front and back. You can see the two are mirror images. And because of all that they can do to... Yeah, Dean? John was written late. So John was the last of the apostles to die. He probably died around 95 AD. So this is within a generation of his writing. Now, even if he wrote earlier, like it's a generation from his death. So like, it's like, hey, John, what, well, can't call up the phone, right? But, you know, what, you know, could be able to actually have access to the author. Very, very, now it's not a very big sample, but it shows, it shows the manuscript evidence goes back a long ways. This is really, really cool that this was just decades after John. So we don't think this was John's actual writing. We don't think this is what he actually, this isn't his, his handwriting. But it's someone who's within the first generation of him. <coughs> In general, from the, from the second century, that's the 100 to 200 time frame, the immediate generations after the apostles, we have 12 manuscripts, 12 Greek manuscripts from that time. From the 3rd century, so the 200 to 300 time frame, we have 61 Greek manuscripts. From the 4th century, that's when the Codex Sinaiticus comes, it just starts blowing up a little bit. We have 121 extant manuscripts, and then beyond that, uh, the 400s, the 5th century, 179, and then really starts going out, especially after Christianity is legalized uh, in the empire. And, uh, and then it, you know, the manuscripts continue down until the Middle, middle Ages. Manuscripts stop being done when? What historical event stopped the manuscripts, Dean? The Gutenberg Press. After that, you don't have any need for manuscripts because that, those printing presses were able to do it. Now, again, by comparison, if we look at how that compares to those who are Greek and Latin authors, 400 years later is the earliest manuscript we have of this guy. 800 years later for this guy. 800 years later, 500 years later, 1,500 years later. By comparison... What would that be a little bit like? That would be, if you've got a manuscript, if, if the earliest manuscript you have 
is 400 years after the author wrote. That would be like someone today copying something that happened about the, uh, about the, May, uh, the Mayflower arriving at Plymouth Rock. That's the amount of time that it would be. You know, if it's 800 years later, that's the Crusades. Like that amount of length of time between that and, and then. Now that doesn't mean that the, we're saying that the manuscript evidence isn't there. Obviously, there were copies before that would be copied. But the time frame is, is greater than it is for the New Testament. So the New Testament is better preserved than all the other ancient kind of texts. Even when we think about how things are better for us in 2022 than it was for people in King James's day, the King James Version was done in 1611. It was based on a total of eight Greek manuscripts, only eight. And the oldest manuscript went back to the 11th century. So they didn't have access because of what they were operating under, what archaeology had uncovered, etc. The earliest thing they had to go on was the 11th century, and they only had eight copies. Now, those eight copies have a high degree of correspondence, and they correspond very closely to what we have, right? But even now, by comparison, we and our modern translations are based on 55, the whole 5,500 Greek manuscripts, and the oldest one goes back to the 2nd century. Now, let me ask you a question forgetting all the these and thous, how close is the King James in terms of the text to an ESV? It's pretty darn close. There's a few places where the, the King James is based on later manuscripts that end up being not as reliable. So there are a few places where we don't think that the King James actually accurately has the original text, and that's usually, you know, there's footnotes on that and, and things like that. And we're going to look at some specific ones. But we actually, even though the King James is an excellent translation, we now have a much, we have a much earlier group of manuscripts to base our text on. And it's not like the King James is very far away from that, which just gives evidence that we've actually got broad continuity of, of what the text is. So what do we have we have reliance on manuscripts, which is what every ancient book has. Every ancient, no one had the printing press, not just the Christians. We have the availability of manuscripts. That's, an open, that's open. Not everyone knows about it, but it's not like anyone's trying to hide anything. We have lots of manuscripts available, many thousands of manuscripts, and they're pretty old. Now, what about textual variants? What about the differences? What about how things are a little different, and as we said last week, no two manuscripts are absolutely and utterly identical. They are human work. All right, so does that mean... So there's, there's more text... It is true, there's more textual variants than there are actual words in the New Testament. That sounds unsettling. It sounds like all these manuscripts, but they're all bad. Is that true? It's not true. It's not true. There are, let's see, is that, yeah, there are 138,162 words, give or take, in the Greek New Testament. There are over 10 times that, the number of textual variants. But we're going to look at what ones, what actually is significant about these. And the reality is, the more manuscripts you have, the more variants you will have. If you've got one person copying one manuscript, you're going to have some differences, Right? If you had to write something out as big as the New Testament, you'd have some differences. If you have hundreds and hundreds of people copying manuscripts of the Bible, 
you're just gonna you're just gonna have more variants. It just that's just gonna happen, right? So the fact that there's this large number of variants is actually a byproduct of how rapidly the scriptures were being copied and how many copies were being made. And actually, if you have only one copy, let me ask you this: if you have only one copy of, say, Julius Caesar, only one manuscript of Julius Caesar. And it's from several hundred years after Julius Caesar wrote. Maybe it's 600 years after Julius Caesar wrote. How can you... Do you have any textual variants? No, there's only one copy. It can't differ from itself. You don't have any textual variants. But what about your degree of confidence that what you have is absolutely exactly what Julius Caesar wrote? Relatively lower because you don't have nearly as many... Because you only have the single manuscript. You wouldn't know if there was anything that had changed. Whereas if you have many, 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 many manuscripts from many, many manuscript families, you have, um, you have more variants, but you actually also have an easier time finding out what the original actually was. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's not actually true. Uh, I'm going to skip that part. I think we're just going to move on to the kinds of textual variants. There we go. Kinds of textual variants. Most, vast majority of the textual variants are differences in spelling. Now, we have a very highly standardized spelling in English, right? You know, we, we send our kids to spelling class. You know, my kids have lists of spelling words. And Now, spelling is not as standardized in the ancient world, right? So we actually, someone decided, Daniel Webster or somebody, came up with the right way to spell things. So lots of variants involve spelling. Does Matthew have one T or two T's? Uh, do you know what Georgia, the town of Georgia, has, uh, the, the, the clerk has for my, uh, my tax bill on my property tax? Bread Parker. <laughs> B-R-E-A-D. Ironic that in New Zealand the two words actually are spell, are, do sound identical. Um, it doesn't have butter for a middle name. Bread. But it's Bread Parker. Now, is anyone in any doubt that when I go pay and pay my tax bill... Brad Parker at 262 Nottingham Drive instead of Brad Parker at 262 Nottingham Drive. Is anyone like, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if you should pay this tax bill. No, they're happy to get my tax bill. Um, so, you know, uh, for instance, in Greek, in English, we have, is it book? So take book. Is it a book or an book? A book, because it's before, the A comes before a consonant. What about Apple. A apple? An apple. An apple. Now, Greek has something very similar to that, with a, with a, actually with their N sound, but, and, and, but there was much less consistency on, on when to apply it. And lots and lots and lots of manuscripts, the variations are about that particular spelling difference. And that's all it is. A versus N. Now, if I say, if I say a apple... You're going to be, do you have absolute certainty what I mean? Even though, you know, I didn't say it according to standard English, an apple, right? But a apple is perfectly understandable. You know what it, what it is. There, the, so you have tons and tons of spelling differences. That's the vast majority. Are spelling differences all that important to the, the, our, the understanding of our faith? No, it's, no, it's not. Because we know what the original we know what the original would be. Errors of sight, errors of he- hearing, that's like, you know, scribes copying from, you know, their master scribe who's 
calling, and, and the scribe says, flush it out, and the guy writes, flesh it out, or something like that, right? So very, um, uh, they just thought they heard a different word, something like that. Um, word order, word order and the use of the article. So in Greek, you can say the sentence, Brad loves Elisa. So if you say Brad loves Elisa in English, is that identical to Elisa loves Brad? Uh, no, actually, one's got the other subject. You can say Brad is loved by Elisa, and that would be the, the passive voice. But if I say Brad loves Elisa, Elisa loves Brad, are they saying the same thing or different things? They're saying different things. Now, in Greek, in Greek, word order does not matter like that. It's all about the endings. So Brad loves Elisa and Elisa loves Brad, if you've got the right endings, actually say the same thing. There's, so, so because the grammar is different. So apparently, again, I, I don't have a way to check this, but Richard, who, who presented a lot of this material, is much better at Greek than I am. He says there's about 2,000 ways to say Brad loves Elisa in different word orders in Greek. I, don't, I, I can't quite figure that out, but um, I trust him. It's a lot. It's a lot of ways to say the same thing. So if you, get, if you have that word order different in one manuscript or one manuscript family, it's not, it's not difficult to see what, was, what, what changed. So there's a difference between meaningful variants and viable variants. You guys aren't looking glazed over yet. That's good. There are, there are a variant can be meaningful or not meaningful. A spelling error. Is that a meaningful variant or a not meaningful variant? It's a not meaningful variant. Now, you have a viable variant and an unviable variant. I'm just going to make a crazy example up. What if it said, you know, Jesus said, you know, this is my body. And one manuscript out of the 6th century says, this is my telephone. Right? And that's the only variant that says that. They didn't even have telephones. I know it's crazy. Is example I'm crazy, but it, that's a that's a meaningful variant. It changes the meaning. Is it a is it a viable variant? Is it is it one that actually has any chance of being original? No, not at all. So we have to look at for what what we're looking for. The things that are the hardest to to figure out are the me, the variants that are meaningful and viable, meaning that there's a chance that we don't know which one is the original. And it actually is meaningfully significant. It might not be, it, it, it doesn't affect doctrine. No variant affects doctrine. But it might affect, you know, whether this word is actually there or not. Like, example would be, does this kind of demon come out with prayer, according to some variants, or prayer and fasting by other variants? Right? So Jesus says, you know, this kind of demon only comes out by prayer. Or is it prayer and fasting? That's a meaningful and viable variant, both of those. So we don't actually, we might not have as much certainty as to what the original was. Um, so when you look at the types of variants, the vast majority are spelling errors. The next amount is the not meaningful variants, like word order. Then you've got a, a, another set which is not viable, like, you know, I am, you know, I am the resurrection and the shoe, you know. Um, and then both meaningful and viable, that's about 1%, less than 1% of, the, of all the variants. So the ones that we actually actually have to think about are, are the ones that are in that one, in meaningful and viable, meaningful and variant, 
meaningful and viable variant. For instance, in Revelation 13, 18, the number of the beast. Anyone know what the number of the beast is? 666, unless you're looking at another manuscript family which says it's 616. Now, what does that do? That's a meaningful and viable variant. It could be either. There's actually numerological reasons why it could be either. And, you know, and if I ask all of you, I, I hope few of you would say that you know with certainty what it, the significance of the number of the beast is. But so it, it's not going to change anything about how you live as a Christian believer tomorrow morning. But uh, so there are there are things that the scholars then have to wrestle with. What are we going to? What do we? What do we think? What do we think is the best? Our best guess as to what the original text is. There are about fifteen hundred to two thousand viable, meaningful textual variants that have to exam- be examined carefully comprising mainly, maybe at most, 1% of the entire text. So 99% make no difference at all. They don't change anything in terms of meaning. And then for the 1%, that's where the textual critics... And when I say textual critic, it's not like being critical. It means it's examining those texts and trying to figure out which one's, which one's, which one's more likely to be accurate. All right, so reason for textual variance. This is very interesting. The method matches the mission what did Jesus give us to do as a mission? Make disciples, spread the gospel. So theologically, what would the early church have wanted to do with the word of God as it came into being? Get it out really, really slowly. Get it out, translate it. You know, Alex is going on a journey to southern France. Let's get him a copy of the Gospel of Luke. You know, Damon's heading over to Illyrica. We've got to get him a copy quick. You know, Allison, she's going on to visit her friends in London. Let's get her, you know, so that she can take the gospel to... So you actually have rapid multiplication of the number of, uh, like, all sorts of people copying these. And as everyone gets a copy, you're actually... They're, they're less concerned with absolute precision, not that they're not concerned with precision, but it actually makes sense that in that context, you, in a strongly missiological context, where you're trying to get the word out uh, in as many contexts as possible, that you would actually see, again, you'd see more variants kind of arise. There was never a time when one guy, like a Caesar, you know, no, not Caesar, a Constantine, uh, or some group of men, some cabal, had control over the text of the New Testament. There wasn't a central authority, whether the temple in Jerusalem or the Pope or, or Constantine, who could have changed or controlled the transmission of the New Testament. It's just exploding everywhere like a ping-pong ball. All right. The upshot of that is... Oh, great commission. There we go. There are multiple lines of transmission. And that's why the telephone game doesn't actually give an accurate representation. Right in a telephone game, let's say I start all the way over on just the, the person on... You guys all like to sit on very nicely lined up, right? So in the telephone game, I talk to Bill, Bill talks to Dave, Dave talks to Jacob, etc. down the line. Now, in the rules of the telephone game, can they talk to each other? Can they talk to me? And... How many lines of transmission are there? Just one. But that's very different from how the New Testament would have been done. Right? Say I'm the Apostle John, and I've got friends over in Ephesus, and I've got friends over in Rome, and I've got friends... And there's multiple lines of transmission copying rapidly, but what can happen? As long as I'm alive, what can anybody do? If they, if they have the time and the resource to do. 
They can check with you. Now, maybe Damon copied it, and maybe John copied it from Damon, and Allison copied it from, from, um, from John, but maybe Allison's not quite sure whether what John wrote was, was actually accurate. Who can Allison check with? She can check with me. Who, who, what, if I just, what if I just conked him? What if I just died? Who else can she check with? She can check with Damon. And this is all happening in multiple different... So it's like a tree rather than like, a, like just a line. So um, even though there's a smel- relatively small time gap between the, when the originals were written and our earliest copies in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, it's actually amazing how through all those trees that are going on, how much the manuscripts line up. And they follow multiple lines of transmission. Actually, you have this other phenomenon where, let's say it got, let's say the text got accurately, let's just stick with one line here. Say the text got accurately, Bill copied it accurately from me, Dave from Bill, Jacob, Jacob is the one that made the mistake. Now, Jared, Jared sees what Jacob wrote. Say it's a meaningful, viable, and he's like, that's a little interesting that it would say that. Boy, I would think that it would say this. But what do you think Jared's going to do? Is he going to change it back to what he thinks it is, what he thinks might be more likely, or is he going to stick with what he, what's actually there? Unless he can check they tended to stick with what was already there. So now, Jacob to Jared. Jared Jared copies the error. Matt copies the error from Jared. Jamal copies the error from Matt. So so now, let's let's say I know that all of us copied it right. Right? All of of our lines copied it right. There's one line that has the variant, and and at some point it changes, and then it stays changed. Is it easy or hard to determine what the text says? what the original was. It's pretty easy if I have all this. If I have all this data. Okay, so it's not like the telephone game. Let me show you an example of how textual criticism works. I hope you get... I hope... I tried this exercise. I hope that it makes sense. Okay, what's that the text of? Genesis. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Imagine that's the original. Imagine that's the original. And then you, and people are copying this and copying this and copying this, and they're copying it accurately, and then somebody does something. Can you see what changed? What changed? Okay. Was over the place of the deep. So somebody changed place. What's the other variant? Yeah, light and night. And God saw that the night was good. Instead of God saw that the light was good. I tried to make things at least that made sense. Um, now, if all I had was those two, I might, I might have meaningful variants, viable variants that I would need to guess. But what if that was just that one family again? And everyone else has got light. Everyone else has got face of the waters. Now, we come along, we do some more digging we get another. I've tried to make it darker each time. What, what changed with this variant? Did anyone notice? Yeah, first full day. First full day. So there was an addition to the last line. Some scribe decided it would be clearer. Uh, maybe if we said first full day. Now, we still have these other two variants that are facing off. But again, maybe we have two-thirds of the manuscripts, and maybe it's the earlier manuscripts that all say face. And like a few manuscript families that have 
the place of the waters, and they're like older. Which, would, which one should I take? Should I take face or place? All right, I lost you. If, if 75% of the manuscripts have face, and they're the earlier manuscripts, I should go with that, right? Yeah, not terribly difficult to know what to go to. And let's say, you know, there's, a, there's an, another one, and someone wrote, you know, uh, translated, uh, the breath of God instead of the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, let's look at that. We've got multiple textual variants, right? And maybe if they represent, you know, copies of copies of, of you know, like, like the things got copied, you'd, you'd have all sorts of different manuscripts. Now, do we have a pretty reasonable understanding what 99% of that text says? Yeah, in fact, it's identical, right? 90, 99% of the text is identical. And do we have a reasonable ability? Do you see how we have a reasonable ability, despite the fact that those are all variants, of actually uncovering what the original was? And that's the process of textual criticism. It would have been better if I had one of those old transparency overhead projectors where you put the blue and the green, and the, and, you know, but, but this was as best as I could do. Okay, so that's how scholars work to figure out what's the original. And if you remember, actually, I'll go back to a slide that was last week. I don't know how far back it was. That's where you get this. That's the textual apparatus that BJ and I will consult if we're in, in doubt as to what we think is happening. That's where there's the text, and that's the best text that the best scholars think is, was original, and then there's the variants down below. You know, remember... According to Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, you know, the holy gospel according to Matthew. All right, I gotta go back. I'm a wizard at PowerPoint. There's all my variants. All right. Let's look at major textual variants. These are the three variants that are the most significant and the most uh, and the and the hardest. They kind of feel they don't feel great in the gut. I don't think they need to not feel great in the gut, but it, it's a bit sentimental. No, it's, it's a bit like tender heartstrings for some of this. Someone with the King James, read for me, please. First John five seven and eight. Anyone with the King James? I know. Did, Damon's going to have a King James, but he doesn't have his Bible out. Anyone else? And someone with an ESV, look it up too. Now remember, King James, let's see whether you remember. How many manuscripts were they operating with? Eleven. I think eight. Eight. And were they, were they old or new? They were new. They were they were relatively recent. Eleventh century. That's where he got eleven from. They were from the eleventh century, and they were there were only eight of them. Now, those texts, which were all from the Latin family, they were all from the from one geographical region. Damon, read it for us. For there are these that bear. Nope, not the. Three. Three. Okay, good. Someone read it in the ESV. For there are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are three. All right, what's missing from BJ's ESV that was in Damon's King James? 
These three bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's in the later manuscripts in this, in this one family. Now, isn't that interesting? What do you have in there? The Father, the Spirit. You have what? A Trinitarian formula. These three bear witness in heaven. These three bear witness on earth. The Spirit and the water and the blood. I'm just talking about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, I believe. And, this, and the testament of the Spirit. Now, it is... These are late manuscripts. They, the Damon's version is in the late manuscripts, not in the early manuscripts. So, not there, not there, not there, not there, not there, not there. Now there. And the King James was taking from these manuscripts. Now, is it possible for you to guess why a well-meaning scribe would add what was in Damon's version? Why would you want to add that? It combats heresy of certain things. It reinforces Trinitarian orthodoxy. Do we believe that there are three in heaven, the Spirit and the, and the Word and the Father? We sure do. And do we believe that those three are one? We sure do. Now, what's more likely? And again, this is what you're doing as textual critics. Is it more likely that someone reading that, if that was original, would decide to take it out? Leaving you with, and there are three. No. Now, actually, in the, in the force of, his, of John's argument, it actually is very tight if you leave it out. It gets stranger if you leave it in. So you have nothing, 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 nothing. It appears. And it strengthens orthodoxy. Honestly, it's easier to see that there's a, there's a principle that says if you have one reading that's easier and one reading that's hard, it's probably the harder one. Why would it probably be the harder one? Because someone probably changed the harder reading to the easier one. It's unlikely that someone would change the easier reading to the harder reading. So you actually have a, a kind of, you're like, okay, which would be, yeah. So, and of course, this is, this is guesswork on this, these small number of variants. But probably that three bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, probably not there. Probably not there. And if you don't believe that the King James is the inspired uh, we're going to talk about this next week, but the inspired uh, translation, then you're, you're, you're free to say, yeah, it's, it's just probably not there. Okay. The ending of the Gospel of Mark. Turn to the end of Mark. There are two textual variants that are more than two verses. That one was two verses. These ones that I'm going to talk about now are more than 12 verses. They're both likely not original. And our modern English translations mark them off in some way. So, Wes, read me what it says beginning in Mark 9. What, are the, what does the translator's note say? Okay, what's the ending? How does verse 8 end, Wes? As after, after the resurrection. It's very abrupt. It's very abrupt. And in the earliest manuscripts, that's how it ends. In later manuscripts, there's an ending. There's an ending of 12 verses, which, you know, has a version of the Great Commission. It also talks about snake handling, um, which is where the Appalachian folk get their practice. Um, 
it's probably not original. It's probably not original. It was, what? Tambourines? Oh, tambourine. Okay. There is that one kid in class. Yes, sir. Not of translations of manuscript families, yes. So you have you end up having them split by geography, right? Because you have a family, you know, it gets to Rome, and then they start doing their copying over in Rome, and it goes west. Or you have the family that's more in the in the Palestine region, or the family that's more in Constantinople, and those then tend to be more similar, and you can trace and the and the ones in Rome. I'm, I should be doing this way because you're, where you're saying ones in Rome are later. Ones that are in the are in Palestine and constant. I don't. I actually have not studied this particular one much, except that it's not the earliest. So it's gonna. Um, so it, and honestly, if people weren't sure, they kept things in. So what I think happened is that some person, well-meaning, who thought, you know what, that's a bit of a funny ending to Mark. Let's, you know, we know that the Great Commission happened. Let's. Let's give Jesus the Great Commission in this gospel. Now, I don't think that is, was a good idea, but I do think that it's understandable. And I don't think this is original. The other one, and this one's harder. John, thir- John 7. Go to John 7. Did you do the same with John? I think I did. I think you John, must have done the same with John. I did not preach that text. And again, because actually the logic flows unbelievably well um, if that passage isn't in there. And when that passage is in there, the logic does doesn't work. Now, this is the woman caught in adultery, which is a, a wonderful story that for some of you, it's your, one of your favorite Jesus stories. Now, I actually think that there's a good chance this story actually happened. Because we know from John there are many things that Jesus said and did that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we know there is a ton of things that Jesus did that aren't recorded in Scripture. This is one I think that, that isn't and that someone added. It's, again, not in the earliest manuscripts. It's also, when it appears in the manuscript families, it floats. Sometimes it's after John 21. Sometimes it's in Luke Sometimes it's where the, we have it here. So we have this passage that's, that's one story that like is bouncing all around. We don't have any other texts that do that. So we have a late edition that's put in different places. It's, it's just probably, it probably wasn't original. Yeah, John. Well, that, that, that's a totally different, that's how they broke things up into chapters and verses, which didn't happen until I think the 1600s. So that's a little, that's a little bit of a different thing. Um, but, uh, but if you read through from John 7 to John 8, uh, is that right? Uh, yeah, John's, the end of John 7 to the middle of John 8, Jesus thought, 
Jesus' thoughts actually make a lot more sense than if you put that in. All these are reasons to say, you know, it's a beloved story. I think it probably happened, but it probably isn't in the original text of the Bible. And some people, you know, uh, you know that's, that's, a hard thing. that's a hard thing to swallow. And if you're in the, and that's one of the reasons, it's not one of the reasons, but if you're a King James only person and you think that God had a superintending, miraculous uh, effect in translating the King James as it is, you say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to hold to what the King James has and it has it in there. So I'm going to call it scripture. But I don't hold that view of, of translation. But here's the final verdict. We've got we to gotta finish up. Doctrine is not changed by any textual variant. Bart Ehrman himself says this. He said, so he was asked the question, why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy are in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? Here's what he said. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. He admits that. It doesn't really affect Christian doctrine or essential Christian beliefs. This is in his most misquoting Jesus. He, was also, he also said, the New Testament has much earlier attestation than for any other book from antiquity. So even the guy that's, that's, that's wanting you to disbelieve the Bible still, still will admit these things. Most people think that the Bible, that trying to find the Bible, the accurate biblical text is like this. It's like a thousand-piece thousand puzzle with stuff missing. That's not really, so how can we know, you know, how can we get? It's, more, it's much more like this. It's like a thousand-piece puzzle when we have about a thousand and twelve pieces. And it's the work to try and figure out exactly which of these, which of these pieces don't fit. So it's, it's not that we don't have... It's, it's almost certain that, some, that, that within all this we have the, what the original authors actually said. We just have a few extra bits that we've got to figure out. And they're not... With the exception of those three variants, they're just really not highly significant. All right. Um, and we don't have time. Gettysburg, yeah, that's, that's it. We have, let's skip over the Gettysburg address so I can tell you that later. We have, Jesus has preserved his word. I don't think the transmission process is miraculous in the same way I think that God breathing out the scriptures is miraculous. I think that was a miracle. That was a prophetic word. That's supernatural. I think that the process of transmission is God's ordinary means of providence by which he directs and guides the world by non-miraculous ways to go towards his intended outcome. And I think we can trust that what we have is accurate, reliable. Doubt isn't warranted. Um, we, uh, we really can trust that what we have is the word of God which... which uh, um, the word of the Lord remains forever, and this is the word. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So, last one is next week. Why trust the Bible when there are so many different versions? So, KJV, ESV, NIV, NASB, the message, all these things. We're going to take a look at how that impacts our doctrine of Scripture. Thanks so much, guys. You really hung in there with some complicated material. Feel free to ask more questions. Thanks.